chapter 1. We are going to begin today a brief series on the Holy Spirit. The reason for that is that we have been working through the book of Acts, and as we have discovered in Luke's writings, there is much to be said about the Spirit, who He is, and what He came to do. There are things that we see, we have seen so far in the first eight chapters of the book of Acts that are, are suggestive and perhaps even normative, common to our experience. And then there are other things that we have seen in the book of Acts which seem a bit outside of our experience. And so naturally, as we are curious, questions arise. How are we to understand the Holy Spirit? How are we to see Him as integral to new life, new birth, and even to our daily worship. And so, not next week because Todd will be preaching for us a sermon thematically driven toward missions, but this week and then probably two weeks after next, the 11th and the 18th, we will have a brief series to learn more comprehensively what the Bible has to say about the person and the work of the Spirit and especially how that applies to our resting in Jesus and to our growth in gospel grace. And so our hope in this is that it won't just be merely informational. The goal is not just to make you smarter Christians. The goal is to help us understand how we might worship God better and understand the role of the Spirit in that. And so it is my hope that this series will not only help you in your understanding of the Spirit, but be very applicational for you as you walk with Christ. And so, the Holy Spirit, these Scriptures reveal to us, I will contend with you over the next several weeks, the Holy Spirit is the power and presence of God with us. Now, from an orthodox Christian point of view, we believe that we worship a God who is one, but who is three in one. We call these three persons. That is a little bit difficult for us in a modern sense because what we mean by personhood was a little bit different than what the church fathers meant by personhood whenever they were trying to wrestle with the Scriptures and define these various members of the Trinity, one God, three in one. But we believe, and I will say this from the outset, that the Spirit is a distinct person in the Trinity. Now, it's difficult for us, as I've said, because when we think of people, we think of individual people in corporal bodies. So, as I look at you, I see a bunch of individual persons out there. We don't mean that we worship three gods. We worship one God, but He exists in three distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And as we will learn, particularly in a couple of weeks as we move into the New Testament's revelation concerning the Spirit, that these three in one are integrally related toward one another, not only in their very nature, for three make up the one, But they are also integrally related toward one another for the coming of the Spirit and the ministry of the Spirit is directly related to the coming of the person of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. And we cannot fully understand the Spirit and then conversely we cannot fully understand the Son or the Father apart from the coming of the Spirit. And so we will find that their ministry, though distinct at times, is integrally connected to one another. But our goal for today is to look into the Old Testament and try to discern from the Old Testament the person and work of the Holy Spirit. A really smart guy from the 19th century named B.B. Warfield an American theologian, said this about the Trinity in the Old Testament. The Old Testament may be likened to a chamber richly furnished but dimly lighted. 
the introduction of light brings into it nothing which was not in it before, but it brings out into clearer view much of what is in it, but was only dimly or even not at all perceived before. The mystery of the Trinity is not revealed in the Old Testament, but the mystery of the Trinity underlies the Old Testament revelation and here and there almost comes into view. Thus, the Old Testament revelation of God is not corrected by the fuller revelation that follows it, but only perfected, extended, and enlarged. What Warfield is saying is that we see shadows in the Old Testament that are only fully revealed and illuminated in the New, and the doctrine of the Trinity is one of those. St. Augustine, many centuries ago, said that the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed, but the Old Testament and the New Testament is revealed. And so I will say to you that this series is important for our faith, and it will only be truly clear if you are here or are able to listen to all of it. But we're going to start today by looking into the Old Testament And though the fullness of the Trinity is not completely revealed in the Old Testament, it's partially concealed, it is there. And as we read with New Testament eyes, we can't pretend that we don't know much of the teaching of the New Testament, we will see contours of the Trinity and in particular the Spirit herein. Why is this series important? I've already hinted to you that if we're really going to understand our position in Christ, our worship of God, and our growth and holiness, we have to understand the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. But why take our time to go through the Old Testament and try to discern the person and work of the Spirit there? In other words, why should you listen today? Well, first of all, we need to know our Bibles, right? I mean, if if nothing else, that should be a goal of ours, to know the Scriptures as fully as we can. So that in and of itself is a noble goal, but if we're not careful, that can just become sort of mud of, a, of an academic goal, and so it, it goes beyond that. One of the reasons, and perhaps the most important applicational reason that we must discern the person and work of the Spirit in the Old Testament is to see how God has saved in the past and how He continued to save His people, and then what that anticipated in the coming of Christ and the granting of the Spirit and how that relates to us. That perhaps was a mouthful. Let me make it a little bit more simple. How does God save people, and how does He set them apart for Himself as they grow in worship? We believe that God, in a sense, saves positionally, But He also saves progressively, and one day He will save finally or fully. This is not just the teaching of the New Testament, it is the teaching of the Old Testament as well. And as we see some saints, God's people, in the Old Testament, we will see how He saved them, how He was saving them and what He would do and His promise to one day fully save them. And and that is our story. How might we be saved from the wrath of God and the punishment that we deserve? How can we in our present daily experience look to the Spirit as our hope for transformation? And how can we look forward to the future when one day our salvation will be brought to fullness and completion. The Old Testament has much to say about that, and those are the fundamental questions of life. How might I be saved? How might I be transformed? What does the Old Testament have to say about that, and how does it prepare us for the fullness, the lens through which we look at the Scriptures of the New Testament? Well, we're going to look at that today. So in Genesis chapter 1, we find that the Spirit was not only one day going to be promised and granted to His people, He was there from the very beginning. In fact, He was part and parcel of creation. Look with me in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, 
God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Scholars, theologians have differed in their interpretation of these verses. Was Moses, who wrote these things much after they took place, Moses would have written in the 15th century B.C. We are not, of course, fully aware of when creation completely came into view, but Moses wrote much later. But under inspiration of the Spirit, we learn in the New Testament that even these Old Testament authors were writing by the power of the Spirit. This is suggested in places like 2 Timothy 3 and 1 Peter chapter 1, that Moses wrote, not perhaps with full understanding of the three persons of the Trinity, but at least in a veiled, shadowed way, there is an understanding that perhaps there is multiplicity within the personhood of God. In other words, we see Yahweh, the Lord, God for His people creating here. But at least hinted at that the Spirit of God is active as God's power to create. When it says here in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, that He was hovering over the face of the water, it, it carries with it in the original language the idea of, of quivering power, like, like it's charged electrically, waiting to create. We will find later on in verse 26 of Genesis chapter 1, if you'd like to look there with me. God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Theologians and scholars have not only differed over Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, as to whether or not that is a distinct reference to the third person of the Trinity, but as to what to do with this verse. Is this an early reference to the triune nature of God, that our one God exists in three persons? It's not full. It's perhaps not as completely clear as we would want it to be. Moses did not give us some sort of Hebrew parenthesis and say, by the way, when I, when I write us, I mean God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But, but perhaps at least it's hinted at here. And it may give us an indication in verse 26 and then reference back to verse 2 here in Genesis chapter 1 that, that Moses perhaps understood to some degree that the one God that Israel was to worship was perhaps a bit more complex than, than even we knew that they knew. So perhaps there is multiplicity within the Godhead, multiple persons within the Godhead hinted at here. But I think we can at least suggest that God the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, was very active from the very beginning. And if He was quivering and anticipating with eagerness the, the making of all things, not just the cosmos that we see in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, but people specifically in verse 26, that we see not only the creative power of God on display, but the love of God on display. A couple of years ago, as you remember, we taught through the book of Genesis, chapter by chapter, one of the things that I tried to make clear as we worked through the first couple of chapters of Genesis where when we find the creation account is that primarily Moses was not trying to teach us about science. That does not mean that there are not scientific suggestions in those first couple of chapters, but that Moses is writing with, with covenantal ideas in mind. He's, he's writing theologically, and he's trying when he wrote these things so many centuries later to teach his people something very specific. So that when Moses recorded in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, the beginning of all things, he was really saying to his people, these people that he had led out of captivity in Egypt, everything that you see around you, this would have been true as they, as they left Israel, as they left Egypt rather, and, and made it through the Red Sea, as they came to Sinai and saw God powerfully give them his covenant promises there, and then later as they neared the environs of the promised land, but 
but only tasted of it because they rebelled and God forced them to wander around and later would go in under Joshua's leadership that as they viewed the world around them, that they could know with full confidence that it had been made by God. And that more than this, that they had been made by God. And that even more than this, that He sustained everything that they did, every breath that they took. That they didn't have to fear when they faced terrible enemies. That they didn't have to be afraid when they ran out of water or food. For the God who made all things made them and cared for them and loved them. And as you see the Spirit of God, again, perhaps hinting at the third person of the Trinity, God's power and agent of creation here in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, it, it looks to me like, like eager longing to make a world where His image bearers would reside so that He could show them how great He is and bring them into a loving relationship with Himself. Because we know that a couple of chapters later that they would fall into sin But we know with the lens of the New Testament that God was not surprised by this. The God, the Trinity, made a world that they knew full well would fall into rebellion, and yet they made it anyway so that both the righteousness and justice and grace of God would be put on display. God the Spirit is a great artist here. He is a mighty creator here, creating a world in which the only hope of the future fallen image bearers would have is that they would instill it with gracious, sacrificial love. So the eagerness with which we see the Spirit of God creating here in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, indicates to us that God is a God who loves to share Himself. And that's the first thing I think that we take away from our understanding of the the hints of the Old Testament teaching about the Holy Spirit. And that is that He is a willing, active, loving Creator. And just so we're clear as we walk away from this first Old Testament reference, what I am suggesting to you is the Spirit was eager to create a world in which God's glory would be put on display, particularly the grace of covenantal sacrificial love on behalf of these image bearers who would one day fall. And so, the Spirit of God is a Spirit of power. The Spirit of God, by implication, is a Spirit not just of power, however, but a spirit of love for this creation that he is active and eagerly bringing into form, driving away the the void-like nature of it, bringing order into it. He is doing so eagerly so that God's glory could be put on display and that one day these image bearers could enjoy him. So he is an eager creator And he is one who sustains all life and does so for the glory of God and the joy of his people. Let's pause here applicationally for just a moment. There is great confidence to be garnered, to be drawn from these suggestions. This means that, of course, you didn't make yourself. This should lead you not only to humility, for you did not create yourself, and you do not sustain yourself, but it should lead you to confidence that God created you on purpose. God created this world more largely on purpose. This means that for those of us who are in God's covenant family, and that's who Moses was writing to. Moses was writing to God's covenant people that we can take great confidence that we are not here by accident. That the world does not exist by accident. That the things that happen to us and all around us don't happen by accident. That God is eagerly, with love, making and orchestrating all things for His glory and for our good. And this should give you great confidence. You are tiny. I am tiny. 
and the sweep of human history, we are, we are a grain of sand. In light of the grandeur of the scope of the universe, we are something far smaller than that. But we are loved. And as we look at the Spirit here, awaiting the creation of all things, doing so with goodness and, and glory and love, we can take great confidence that He is watching over us and He has from the very beginning. So, the Spirit is God's power to create, but He is more than that. He is God's loving agent of creation in which He makes His people and governs them and cares for them. But, God gives His Spirit to people to empower them. Turn with me to Numbers chapter 11. So this Spirit of God, this agent of creative power and governance, is not just used generally by God to make all things. He gives the power of His Spirit to His people. In Numbers chapter 11, we find that the people have now left Egypt. They are hoping to make it to the promised land. They will not be able to enter into the promised land under Moses' leadership, for Moses did not represent God perfectly. They would later, as I've already said, go under Joshua's leadership. But over time, Moses found it impossible to govern these people well. So under the counsel of his father-in-law, he appoints others who will help him lead Israel. In verse 16, the Lord, approving of what Moses' father-in-law had said to him, gather for me 70 men of the elders of Israel whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them and bring them to the tent of meeting and let them take their stand with you. And I will come down and talk with you there and I will take some of the spirit that is on you And put it on them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you may not bear it yourself alone. We find here in this passage that God takes His Spirit, this powerful Spirit that had made all things and governed all things with power and love, and gives it to His people, to Moses and to His fellow leaders. Now again, we can just reference this passage and tuck it away in our brains somewhere, but I I think it suggests something. That the very power of God that made all things, that separated the waters from the dry ground, the heavens from the earth, that made all the creeping things and all the plants to feed them, and made most especially God's image bearers, that this same powerful spirit, a spirit of might and a spirit of love is granted to His people to help them. So here's the idea. Israel had existed for several hundred years in captivity in Egypt. And particularly those last many years in Egypt, it had been awful. They had dwelt as slaves. And all the consequential things that comes that come along with that had been their experience. They had been oppressed. They had been afflicted. They had been treated as property. They were not treated as proper image bearers. And over time, as you can imagine, this would have caused them to doubt the providential promises of God. But Moses comes along and with the power of God frees them from captivity takes them through the Red Sea, through which they are rescued, but Pharaoh's army is destroyed. As we've already talked about this morning, takes them to Sinai, gives them His covenant, and promises them that He will be their God forever. But they are a large people and a growing people. How will they be governed? How can they live together in harmony, and how can they worship God well? Those are basically the two fundamental questions for this people who do not yet have a home. They've made it out of captivity and slavery, but they are not yet settled in the promised land. So how can they relate to God properly, and how can they relate to one another properly? How can they live in harmony with God, 
And how can they live in harmony with one another? That is why God shows up here in these verses and shows that He will govern them through His leaders who are controlled and governed by His Spirit. And herein, once again, we find the power and love of God on display. God wants to govern His people to lead them to transformation. After all, that's why He brought them into covenant with Himself, to show that His promises of salvation had not fallen apart. The promises that He gave to Abraham to build a nation and through that nation bless the world, it would come to pass and God would keep His promises. The problem, as we know in Israel, is it didn't take them very long to turn away from God. And it didn't take them very long to fight among themselves. So God gave them a law. But the law cannot transform a heart. We will find this in the second and third weeks of our teaching about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. That the Spirit governs, in some ways, through the law. He he teaches us through the law. The law is good and righteous and holy, the Apostle Paul will later say. But the law cannot transform. The law cannot make an evil person holy. The law cannot make a rebellious person faithful. The law cannot make us love. The law cannot make us obey. So why did God set apart this covenant people? Because He had promised Abraham that He would. And then one day through this nation, He would bring about a Savior who would not only bless the Jews, but the entire world. And so He preserves for Himself a covenant people. They did not come to Him and seek Him of their own accord. They would not have, for they were evil. And they would not have remained faithful to Him. They could not, for they were evil. So what does God do in their midst? in and among them, He permeates their experience with His powerful, gracious Spirit, thereby showing that that relationship to God does not come through an external law written on tablets of stone or on a sheepskin somewhere. But God secures for Himself worshipers by His powerful, gracious Spirit. This is suggested in Judges chapter 6, if you'd like to turn there with me. Eventually, after Joshua goes off the scene, there are others who come after him who, in different ways, with different iterations of success, help lead the people. There was a man named Gideon. And I have the uh, wrong reference up in front of you on the screen. It is not Judges chapter 6, verse 35. But in this section, and I'm not going to go looking for the verse, for I probably will not find it, but it is here in this section. I assure you that in this section it is said that Gideon exists under the power and leads with the power and love of the Spirit of God. This suggests that this extends beyond Moses and the elders that were with him. The idea is that even in Israel's darkest times, and if you read through the book of Judges, it's a cycle of sort of dismay. You'll have a judge who who does pretty well. He's like a local leader in a portion of Israel. He'll do pretty well. He'll lead the people to some measure of faithfulness. But then what happens? The people fall into rebellion once again. God judges them by bringing in some of their enemies in calamity. They repent, and they come back again under the leadership of another judge. What does this suggest? That, that even in the darkest time of Israel, when Israel was not faithful to God and their leaders were largely disappointing, that God was still in and among them. God was blessing them through His people, and He gave His Spirit. And I did find that it is verse 34, not verse 35. The writer of Judges says in Judges 6, verse 34, but the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet, and the Abezerites were called out to follow him. 
God takes care of His people. God governs them, but not just so they be rule keepers. God draws His people to Himself despite their rebellion, despite their willfulness, and secures their worship. Look with me in Isaiah 63. This is an important passage in the Old Testament in reference to the Spirit. And it helps us understand what Israel was like after God brought them out of Egypt. In Isaiah chapter 63, verse 7, the prophet records this. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord and the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us and the great goodness to the house of Israel. But He has granted them according to His compassion, according to the abundance of His steadfast love. For He said, Surely they are My people, children who will not deal falsely. And He became their Savior. In all their affliction He was afflicted, and the angel of His presence saved them. In His love and in His pity He redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. This is a reference to how God brought Israel out of Egypt and made them His own. But as we know from the Old Testament, we just suggested this from the period of the judges, they didn't stay that way. They didn't stay faithful. Look at verse 10. But they rebelled and grieved His Holy Spirit. This is at least a subtle reference to the personhood of the Spirit that we, again, believe that we serve one God who exists in three persons. And here this Spirit is grieved, which only an individual person can experience. Therefore he, God, turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. And he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people, which we've talked about this morning already. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them, again reference to the Red Sea, to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths like a horse in the desert. They did not stumble. Like livestock that go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. This means that in Israel's experience, in coming out of bondage and oppression, and under the leadership of Moses and later leaders, that God's Spirit was in and among them. Now, we know this more fully from the New Testament, and we will talk about this in the coming weeks. We, we know that He has been granted to us to, to be among us, to govern us, to transform us. But the Old Testament is telling us that, at least in a sense, that's what the Spirit was doing for Israel as well. And here and again lies an implication. God did not just secure for Himself an ethnic following. He didn't just make the Jews His own ethnic people. He gave them His powerful creative spirit that we saw back in Genesis chapter 1, who eagerly created and did so with love. And God planted His powerful, gracious spirit among them. But they didn't always listen. And they didn't always follow. And again, I believe herein lies application for us. God does not call us to Himself and leave us to ourselves. Now, this will become much more clear over the next few weeks, but, but it is important for us to see the early contours of this, the early hints of this. God does not just desire external worship. We know from later on that Jesus criticized this with, with great fervor. Jesus was not satisfied with mere externalism. He said of the Pharisees that, that they were like whitewashed sepulchers. You know what it's like whenever you go to a cemetery, and it's impressive to see these large tombs with obelisks, and some of them you can even walk into. And you think to yourself, that must have been a pretty important person. This is pretty and impressive. Regardless of whether or not you are buried in a temple of marble or in a simple wooden box somewhere, it holds the same thing dead men's bones. And Jesus likened the religiosity, the external legalism of the Pharisees to that. God is not just satisfied with ritual. And He knows that left to ourselves, that's where we will go. 
Paul hints at this in Romans chapter 1, that humanity, when they see the glory of God revealed in creation, suppresses it. They don't want to deal with it because they want to do their own thing. And Paul says three times there in Romans chapter 1 that God's judgment upon humanity is letting them have their way. In other words, if you want to suppress the knowledge of the Holy One, the idea that there is a Creator to whom you are accountable, I'll let you have your own way. And that's the greatest judgment God could give to humanity. But what do we see going on with Israel? Here in Isaiah chapter 63, referencing Israel's experience, that God did not just give them a law written on tablets of stone and then let them have their own way because He knew where that would go. No, God put His Spirit among them to govern them and to lead them into holiness. Many rejected, but some, the faithful, were transformed and and lived in joy before God and with one another. So as we already said in referencing Numbers chapter 11, God gives His Spirit that we might live in harmony with Him and in harmony with one another. This means that you can't just muscle out righteousness, and you cannot muscle out by the exertion of your will holiness. It it will not work. Only God can create. Only God can save, and only God can transform. This means that in the Old Testament covenantal people of God, that He was doing that. Why? Because He loves. The very reason that this eager spirit in Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 created in the first place. To create a people that though they would fall into willful rebellion and turn inevitably toward self-righteousness and self-dependence and self-rule, that God would seek to redeem for Himself a people who would be holy and who would enjoy Him. God has always done that. Look with me now, please, in Isaiah chapter 11. This will be a bit of a pivot point in our teaching today. Was this the universal experience of Israel? That they would live in harmony with God and harmony with one another. That they would be able to resist their natural, inevitable tendency to self-govern and self-rule and to lean on their own self-righteousness. Would that be the universal experience of Israel? As is suggested in Isaiah 63, the passage we just referenced, and in our understanding of the rest of the 39 books of the Old Testament, by and large, what was the experience of the people, particularly the Old Covenant people of God, Israel? What was their experience largely? Most of them were not faithful to God. That though the Spirit of God was in and among them, by and large, their experience was was not one of faithful harmony with God and with one another. So what would God do about that? Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 2, the prophet gives these words of hope. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. We talked about this over our Advent teaching series. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. It's the idea that you look at a log sticking out of the ground that is still in the ground. It's it's a stump. And you look at that and you say, that tree is lopped off. It's dead. But if you look a little more closely, there's a sprig of life coming out of it. And, And though it's small and though perhaps seemingly insignificant, it shows that it's not fully dead. That was Israel. By the time of Isaiah's prophesying, this is 8th century B.C., Israel was a mess. The nation had split in two. It would not be long after this that the northern kingdom, the northern ten tribes, would be led away into captivity by the Assyrians. It would not be long after that that the southern kingdom would be led away to captivity in Babylon. This was bad. But what would God do? He would take that which was seemingly dead and give life to it. And then look at verse 2. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Moses had that to a degree. The elders with him and, and Gideon and others had that to a degree. 
But this one will be different. This one will never fail. Moses failed. The elders with Moses failed. Gideon and the rest of the judges and leaders failed. Even their best leader, David, failed. But this stump of Jesse, the shoot from the stump of Jesse, this branch that we see in the second part of chapter 11, verse 2, verse 1 rather, is the one that we see back in Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9 is the passage that Isaiah speaks of the child who will be born, who will be wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. That's this same one in Isaiah chapter 11, this shoot from the stump of Jesse, this branch from the roots. This one upon whom the Spirit of the Lord will rest in fullness and power without measure. Moses was a decent leader. Maybe the best Israel had. David, in many ways, was a good leader, but but in some ways an utter failure. His son, seemingly, would, would be one who would lead the nation in righteousness, but he fell apart, and the kingdom was torn in two and led away into captivity and The prophet here says in Isaiah chapter 11, when everything looks so bleak that it wouldn't always be that way. And as you understand the period in which Isaiah wrote, as as he looked out around him and saw what had happened to this once glorious nation who seemingly had so much hope, God rescued them from Egypt to make them his own with a mighty and powerful hand and gave them a land that they would not have conquered on their own. And blessed them and promised them eternal promises. As Isaiah looked around him, by and large what he saw was utter failure. But he promises that it won't always be this way. That one day one will come who will be wonderful counselor, mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. And he will set up a kingdom that will exist forever Upon him, the Spirit of God will exist. And therein lies the hope of God's people that one day transformation can come and it will last. Look with me, please, in Ezekiel chapters 36 and 37. I encourage you, if you want to do a little bit of homework and corollary study, to take your time to read through these two chapters. We obviously do not have time to do this today. But these are two incredibly important chapters in understanding the ministry of the Spirit in the Old Testament and the promise of what He would do in the coming of the New Covenant. Look in verse 22 with me of Ezekiel 36. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. Remember, in Isaiah 63, they had grieved the Spirit. This was God's perspective on them. So he's saying, I'm, I'm going to bring back glory for myself. I'm going to get glory for myself. How am I going to do that? Verse 23, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. What what does this prophesy? We know that Moses took the law of God and inscribed it on tablets of stone. It was external to them. It stood over them. It reminded them of the holiness of God and how they should live. And it was also a reminder of how far they fell short. Those tablets of stone could not create righteousness and holiness. It could not make the people faithful. How could they be transformed? 
the very Spirit of God who hovered and quivered with energy over the face of the waters to create would be placed in their hearts. And it wouldn't be tablets of stone that stood over them and compelled them to holiness. It would be God Himself. So how could worshipers, and this is the fundamental question before us this morning, truly, how could worshipers be transformed for forever? How could they be rescued from their rebellion, transformed morally, and saved for eternity? It would not be by an external law. It would not be by the example of pretty good leaders. God Himself who made all things, would have to enter in. And that's the promise of Ezekiel 36. But as we just saw in Isaiah chapter 11, it would come through the coming of another one, the promised Messiah. He would bring His Spirit and pour Him out upon His people and transform them. Positionally, He would save them, justify them, He would reconcile them to Himself over time, morally, and one day bring them fully into His presence. In Ezekiel chapter 37, Ezekiel is given a vision of a valley full of bones. And he prophesies over these bones. And as those of you perhaps know the story, these bones come to life. A promise that God would rescue Israel would make them His own once again, though they were dead in their trespasses and sins. And that's what He's done for you and me. And brothers and sisters, there is great hope. We recently went through the book of Ephesians together, and in Ephesians chapter 2, we were reminded that we were children of wrath, sons of disobedience, and as the apostle says there, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. But what did God do through the one, this stump of... Jesse, this shoot from the stump, this branch, what did he do? He brought new life through atonement and the granting of the Spirit, and then he makes us alive together with Christ. So how can dead people come alive? How can formerly dead people come into fellowship with God progressively, morally over time? How can dead people live eternally with God? God has to enter into the story. Humanity has wanted its own way, and throughout much of history, God has said, have it. Have your way. Go try that. It leads only to disaster and damnation. But God didn't leave it that way. He promised a Messiah who would come and become a man and keep all the laws that humanity would not keep and offer Himself as a perfectly righteous sacrifice on behalf of all who will trust Him. And in so doing, He then grants His Spirit and brings the dead back to life and transforms them and gives them the promise of eternal, reconciled home with God for forever. That's why in Joel chapter 2, and I invite you to turn there with me as we close today. In Joel chapter 2, we find the promise that we recently saw in Acts chapter 2. So it's coming a little bit full circle if you've been following along with us as we work through the book of Acts. In Joel chapter 2 verse 28, the prophet says, it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions even on the male and female servants in those days. I will pour out my spirit. The first sermon that we see recorded in the book of Acts is Peter's sermon, and he says that on the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit was poured out, that this is what was happening. So to summarize today, God, by His Spirit, makes all things, governs all things with power and love. He gave His Spirit to help govern His rebellious people, but by and large, they turned away. But God made promises that it wouldn't always be that way. He would send a rescuer. This rescuer would possess the Spirit in full measure, and He would grant the Spirit to all who would trust Him. 
and by the Spirit we could be transformed. Finding favor with God once again, finding relationship with God once again. And in Joel chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, we find the final promise of this, that it will, it will come. And as we've seen in Acts most recently, God kept His promise. He sent His Spirit. And so, my brothers and sisters, how might we be saved? By God the Trinity. God the Father promises and executes by sending God the Son who would atone for our sins, becoming a righteous substitute, and then in resurrection power and ascending to the Father, intercedes in our behalf, and the Father and the Son send the Spirit in full measure that we might be born again and transformed. The Old Testament hinted at this, but in so many ways it is a bleak record. But we as the people of God look back with great gratitude for we've been made recipients of this promised Spirit, the Spirit who made us the Spirit who sustains us, the Spirit who gives us new birth, the Spirit who exists within us to transform us for the glory of God and for our joy. So, by way of final application today, what is your only hope? Your only hope is that God would intervene, and He has done that. By sending His Son and they collectively sending the Spirit, we might pass from death to life and experience the full life of God through His transforming power. And we'll see more about that in the coming weeks. So I call you with thanksgiving to look to God with gratitude for all that He has done to transform you and rescue you. It was not of your own doing. This was a gift of God. And to rest in the Spirit who is your only hope. God shares Himself through the Spirit in power and in love with gratitude and confidence and expectant faith. You are not alone. God exists within you and will never, ever fail you or forsake you. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, now I pray that you will give us